Thank you. <laughs> this is where the spotlight follows me around. I'm a real fan of uh, show and tell. And I don't know, it was like my favorite part of school for quite a long time. So I bring some objects because I want to impress upon you that this interscalar exploration is about real people who make things like this, or in this case, a latigo, hit their children with it. Okay? So this is not, this is not beware. This has no implications for anything that I'm going to be doing. But I want you to understand that these objects are made by the people in the place that I'm going to be talking about. It's not just about statistics. It's not just about geography. It's not just about model. It's about people with tears rather than people with the tears dropped off. And what is this? Ideas? Yeah, it's a fish trap. Yeah, it's a fish trap. It's kind of a small model of one, but anyway, you can play with it. So I'll put these in different places. That's the fish trap. This is the latigo. This, these are tagua nuts, which people collect in the forest and actually carve to turn into beautiful things that look like ivory, but they come off of palm trees. And th this, is a, this is a birthday present from my, from my team. It, it goes like this. It's not the kind of thing I'd wear around campus, but all right. It's made out of bark cloth, which is beaten and woven. So, anyway, I don't want tomato sauce on my hat. So, it's a little weird to talk while people are getting food, but that's just the way it is, because if I wait until everybody has food, we're going to be waiting too long. So, enjoy your meal, and I'll be talking about what kills children while you're eating lunch. <laughs> it's the problem with global health work, right? I mean, we call it global health work. But what it's really about is misery and suffering and death and why do people die and why do somewhere around six million children under the age of five die every year, still. So the good news about that figure is, well, it used to be 12 to 15 million a mere 20 years ago. So that's, quote, good, right? Numbers relatively small. But six million kids dying every year under the age of five is not a small number. So to do global health actually means to do global disease and to try to figure out where diseases come from, who suffers from them, and who doesn't. And just to give you an incredibly brief, ridiculously short summary, the kinds of things that kill kids under five are respiratory infections, especially pneumonia, diarrheal diseases, malnutrition, and prematurity and birth trauma. All right, I'm going to talk about this more because if we're thinking about where these data from come from, um, I call these lamplight studies. You know the joke about the drunk looking for his keys, stumbling around in the dark, well, stumbling around on the street, and the guy comes and says, well, where are your keys? What are you doing? And the guy says, well, I'm looking for my keys. And he says, where did you drop them? And the guy says, well, over there, a half a block away. And the guy says, well, but then why are you looking here? And he says, well, because this is where the light is. Okay? So we don't want to do lamplight studies. We don't want to take what's given to us for granted and assume that that's necessarily the right kind of a design. And one of the problems with a lot of the data about infectious disease epidemiology, epidemiology, the study of the distribution and determinants of diseases, who suffers, why, when, where, how. 
problem with the epidemiology of infectious diseases, a lot of these studies are kind of lamplight studies. They look at one clinic, they look at a single village, they look at one point in time, maybe two. They look at an individual as a unit of analysis, maybe a village, did you or did you not boil your water? What's the proportion of water boilers in this village? But they don't tend to look at larger scale. Looking at larger scale costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of time, it's very complicated. And when they think about where to look to try to understand who gets sick, they tend to, do, to look at individuals or maybe sometimes in groups. So individuals would be, do you wash your hands or not? Do you boil your water or not? Groups, do you have a municipal water source? Is your water chlorinated or not? What, do you have lead in pipes in your town? But they don't tend to look at interdependencies, interdependencies. How does the behavior of my family influence my behavior? How does the influence of other people in my village influence my behavior? How does the influence of behavior in other villages upstream and downstream from my village influence the likelihood that my village will get sick or that I will get sick? These are the interdependencies that don't get attended to very often in epidemiologic studies. So I also said, I talked about interscalar travel, and I sure hoped that somebody read that and thought, wow, like we're going to hear about the space race or something. But interscalar is how do you try and account for the incredible complexities that inevitably arise when one asks the necessary question, how is it that a loan to the Ecuadorian government from the Inter-American Development Bank in the year 1997 changes what pathogens are inside human bodies in the year 2005, or the year 2010, or the year 2015. That's not the way we usually pose our questions. That's an incredibly complicated chain of causation. But unless we ask those kinds of questions, we actually have a lot of difficulty understanding the complexities of disease transmission. And that's what I'm interested in. That's what I've been interested in for an awfully long time. I gave, I look back in my records, I'd done a faculty lecture series, lecture series, ha, one time, lecture, in 2011, so five years ago. And at that time, I was trying to explore the idea of how a kind of a qualitative, textual, almost idiosyncratic knowledge of the particular individuals that live in these places helps us understand why and how diseases travel across landscapes. So how do we understand the behavior of the guy that wanted to chop down the trees and bring in the uh, palm oil plantation? How do we understand the behavior of the bus driver? How do we understand the behavior of the farmer? No, I'll pick a better one. Um, the guy who sells fish from the back of his motorcycle. Um, who collects the fish down on the coast and now can take his motorcycle up to villages to sell it. How do we understand the role of all these individuals in moving diseases across landscapes? Well, I'm not going to do that this time. I did that. Now, five years is just long enough that none of the students, I hope, um, who are here now were here then. That's the nice thing about colleges is if you do talk every four years, well, every five years you can give the same talk, but the faculty are here so they know, so I wouldn't do that anyway. But so I wanted to try and play with a different side of this which is thinking about the, the modeling, the larger scale, the, the largest scale. How do you try and make sense of these complexities of diseases moving across landscapes and across human populations? So you've already seen what I have here. It's complicated um, when we're talking about ways in which changed landscapes and an inter-American development bank loan that builds a road that allows trees to be cut, that allows uh, palm plantations to be planted, 
that allows oil palm oil to be expressed, put into tanks and moved on those same roads, sets in motion, and that's what I'm going to be talking about, is motion, is social motion, a whole set of processes that echo through time for decades afterward. How do we understand those kind of processes? Well, it's hard. We've got a landscape. We've got a lot of variability across time and intensity and even velocity. We've got a vast array of different kinds of ways humans respond to these changes. And so we need to think about systems. So I'll be talking more about systems. Thinking about systems and thinking about disease transmission across landscapes is a real challenge for anthropologists. It's really hard to interview the pathogens. And yet, they're a part of the story. So as an anthropologist interested in epidemiology with a bit of training in epidemiology and a lot of interdisciplinary collaborative work over the years, um, I have to learn to think like a pathogen in addition to learning to think like a human being. So how do I, as a pathogen, get from inside this body over into that body over there? Unless I think well that way, I can't understand this story. So I can't just talk to the humans about that. I have to ask questions to the pathogens as well. And that's part of the scalar challenges in this kind of work, because what that means is if you want to ask questions of the pathogen, interviews are not the best technique. You can wait a long time to try and figure out how to do that. In similar fashion, if you want to ask a question about how household proximity in spatial terms influences risk of disease, interviews aren't the best way to do that. You need to actually measure those distances. You need to have geographic scale. So now we have you know, microbiologic scale, we have kind of human social life scale, we have population scale, intervillage scale, and geographic scale, and we're trying to tell a story about movement across or interpretations and analyses across, I think it's actually both, those array of scales to get this understanding in this complex. So, it's not only a challenge for, for ethnography, it's also a challenge for epidemiology, and epidemiologists are starting to write about this stuff. I, I, I do it a lot so I can say it quickly, so I can just say epidemiology, but can you all say epidemiology, please? So just to, epidemiology, can you hear that again? All right, good, all right, so now, so epidemiologists are writing about this too because as they say, this is done in a journal called Interface, one of the interdisciplinary journals put out, by the, um, put out in England, I'm not sure which society does it. Title is Cross-Scale Influences on Epidemiological Dynamics from Genes to Ecosystems. So it's the same kind of dilemma. They're facing the same dilemma. Epidemiologists glancing upwards in scale, worrying that by omitting information about a landscape over which epidemiological dynamics unfold, perhaps their models are after all importantly wrong and likewise looking downwards, and downwards in quotes because these are obviously metaphors, we're increasingly convinced that heterogeneity documented at the level of the individual gene locus is necessary to capture the broader scale epidemiological pattern. So, so epidemiologists are concerned about whether staying at this population level, not understanding geography, and not understanding genetics is sufficient to enable them to draw conclusions. Interestingly enough, artists worry about this as well, and sometimes looking at the art is a more effective way to try and capture some of the underlying dynamics. Um, how many of you were at the um, McGill lecture yesterday? Oh, not very many. Well, you missed a really good time. I'm just not going to say any more about it right now, because not enough of you were there, so you're just going to have to wonder. Ask somebody. So what is this? It's a lot of cigarette boxes. Artist's name is Chris Jordan. Uh, anything to be said about these cigarette boxes? There's some patterning here versus here. But it's really hard to resolve that pattern at this scale. 
You need to back out a little bit. All right, and the reason I love Chris Jordan's work, because he does this in lots of different ways, this is a 98 by 72 inch, this is a big painting, right? Big. I like saying big. And it depicts 200,000 cigarette boxes. And that number matters, because that's the number of Americans who die from cigarette smoking every six months. So it's this wonderful artistic combination of scale. These are all cigarette boxes. You, this is the slide you saw before. And the number itself matters, and the message matters, because this is a representation of, I think it's Rembrandt. Of, anybody know? No? So this is some famous image that the artist is messing with. Okay, so it works at all these different levels. And so the artistry behind the, the crossing scale, I think, is another way to think about how to try and convey messages, another challenge. And sometimes looking to the arts is a really useful way to do that. In some, disease transmission is both individual and communal. And anybody who wants to try and understand the distribution and determinants of diseases faces a genetic frontier and a sociocultural frontier and a geographic frontier. We need to try and combine these different kinds of data to try and draw the picture adequately. So the project that I'm involved in tries to do this by looking at something as stupid as a road. We don't tend to pay a lot of intellectual analytic attention to roads, but they're really interesting phenomena. There are these linear forms that traverse landscapes and allow all kinds of new communication and travel patterns to happen. And in fact, roads aren't the only kinds of things that do what I'm going to be exploring. Railroads do this, canals do this, pipelines, um, oil pipelines, water pipelines, power lines. Anything that opens up a landscape and allows new forms of communication and travel to happen does what it is that I'm about to explore with you. So I'm interested in roads and disease transmission. How does that work? How do you try and untangle and unpack that complexity? This is what the roads look like in the area where I've been working. Primary road, that's what set it all off. Secondary roads that extend off, those are stone and gravel. I have a laser thing, but I like pointing because I like show and tell and I like performing, so. And these are tertiary roads. Well, this is in rainy season. It was a kind of a hard one. This four-wheel drive got stuck, so we had to pull them out. All right, so that's a little part of the story. We have this idea. A road gets built. It's a product of a set of political decisions, a bank loan, resource availability. We think that roads influence interactions between humans as hosts and the environment they live in and that this leads to changing pathogen transmission and disease. How? Well, roads help change water quality. New roads help change demography. New roads help change how people associate with one another, the kinds of social networks that they form, and the availability of goods and services. So what does that look like as a kind of a toy model? We're starting to build this out, see what it looks like. Resource availability, political decisions, yield road construction, not always, but in this case changing good services, forests and waters, aspects of demography, social life, leading to changing host environment interaction, yielding different changes in disease. So that's the very simple toy. What does this really look like? Well, it's kind of, these are kind of before pictures. We have a photographic database of about 6,000 pictures now. Um, these are some before, early on. That's a taxi on the top. And, uh, 
These are both dugout canoes, standard way that people traversed rivers in the area where I work. And this is after. This, is, this top right is early after, so that's one of the early buses, which is just a flatbed truck with a structure built on the back. No springs, wooden seats. Your butt really hurts after a ride on one of these. It's not comfortable, but it was cheap. And so this becomes the new taxi and costs less money and takes less time. That's a really important change. And single poled or paddled heavy wooden dugout canoes get traded in for fiberglass, boats that are very light, relatively inexpensive, not very durable, incredibly quick. And you can put an outboard motor on the back of a dugout, and you can put an outboard motor on the back of the, what they call Fibes, and the Fibes just go a lot faster. So you can get where you're going quicker. How did those fiberglass boats get to this area? How did these fiberglass boats get to this area? Truck. On a truck, on the new road. Resources flow. Wood is taken out. And boy, did we see picture after picture, truck after truck, just pulling all the lumber away. This what I like, because this is lumber leaving in front of an NGO-operated, for about a year and a half, local internet cafe run by GlobalNet. The electricity died, the machines got filled with bugs, and, and a year later it was gone. But I still like the conjunction of the lumber leaving and the electrons entering. That's gold leaving. That's a gold mine. Um, six of the villages where we work with the 25 can no longer drink the water out of the river because the water's polluted, because when you dig a gold mine like this, all you're doing is you're taking about the, tw the top 30 to 40 feet and siphoning it through, blowing water on it with a hose, taking the smallest stuff that falls to the bottom, running mercury through that to concentrate the gold, and that's your gold mining technique. And all the crap, I'm going to use a technical term here, crap, that comes out of this system goes into that river right there. So all the villages downstream from this village can no longer drink that water because it's actually either bright green or bright blue or a series of very bizarre colors, depending on how much mining activity is happening and whether they're using a lot of other chemicals or not. Pollution flows change as well. This is the confluence of two streams. There's a wonderful village here. Well, it used to be a wonderful village. It's not so wonderful anymore because what you can't see is all this has been deforested from here down because the road got there. And which side do you think the gold mines are on? Yeah. There aren't any on this side. All right, so we designed a study to try and understand this better called Environmental Change and Diarrheal Disease in Northern Ecuador. I got a call from Joe Eisenberg out of the blue from Berkeley in the year 2000 who needs somebody who's fluent in Spanish, works in Ecuador, understands diarrheal disease, and is curious. And I got recommended by my uh, PhD supervisor at the point. So how do new roads affect transmission of disease? We have the conditions for a natural experiment. We're in this place where roads are being built for the first time. There are no roads in this area. All prior transportation has either been on the rivers, or for about 30 years there was a railroad about 30 miles north that served the small towns along the railroad, but not much else. So we know lots of things are going to happen. This is an insult to a system, a perturbation in a system. A new road's going to be built. Secondary and tertiary roads are going to be coming off of that. All hell's going to break loose in social life. What does that mean for disease transmission? So we did this for 15 years. 
24 villages, staff of 40. I do the thanks now because then I don't forget. And, and there were a lot of people involved in it. Um, yeah, I won't count them all up, but there were 25 community health workers that we also employed. We had three different, four different grants from NIH and NSF, two grants from NIH, two grants from NSF, and, um, and it's still happening. We haven't collected any data in two years, but I was in Michigan last week, and this is the project team, and that's Joe, the guy there in the back left that I've been working with since the year 2000 on these projects. So these are all uh, doctoral students and postdoc students in Ecuador who are doing continuing data analysis and some data collection on this project. So this is where it is in Ecuador, and that's where Ecuador is, if you didn't know. There's this giant yellow arrow floating in the Pacific, in case you didn't know it. And it's way up in the corner, up near the Colombian border. It's a very zesty area. Border areas are often very active, so there's a lot of action, a lot of people crossing borders, bringing things across borders. Oil is smuggled across this border, guns are smuggled across this border, and cocaine is smuggled across this border. We stopped working in one village because one of those uh, fiberglass drug smuggling submarines was discovered about two miles from one of the villages we were working in, and so we decided we probably should stop working in that village. I haven't been back to the village since. We just had to drop it. It got too dangerous to work there. The field team is predominantly from the area, and they don't face the same dangers that we do. We're marked in a way. This is largely an Afro-Ecuadorian population, largely black, and so as a white guy, I kind of stand out, and um, there was a summer I couldn't go because I was warned that we face dangers of kidnapping, and it's our local team that tells us about that kind of stuff, so we rely upon them for our support and, and safety, and they're far more tuned into these things than we are. So this is the, the, the place where it's all happening, these three river systems, so the water flows to the top of that diagram. Three river systems, about 21 villages when we started, about 4,200 people when we started counting them in 2003, it's up to about 5,500 now. Fully a third illiterate by self-report, so this is a poor, illiterate population. I think the mean level of education was four years for adults when we last looked at it. 90% Afro-Ecuadorian, 7% Mestizo, and less than 1% an indigenous uh, group called Chachi. We categorize these villages according to their remoteness from Borbon. How do we measure remoteness? Cost and time of transport. So these villages take up to, uh, up here, about six hours to get to. Um, these closer one-ins are closer to about an hour. The ones on the road, this is about a 20-minute drive. This is up a secondary road. So this is about maybe 40 minutes. So there's differential cost and time of transport that helps us array these villages across these different river systems by what we're calling remoteness. You can measure remoteness lots of ways. That's why I'm specifying that that's the way we chose to do it. How did these roads change through time? Let me see if this works. It looks like it wants to. Come on, baby, you can do this. You never know. Is it running? Okay. So what we did was we looked at the different road segments um, to get a sense of when they were built. And Early on, everything was starting either from the water, from the coast, or people would take barges with bulldozers on the back of them up to some of the close-in areas and start to build the roads to be able to take out forests. Okay, so this is tree cutting. Nothing linked up to any kind of national network. The only way to get that timber out is to take it down to the coast and then float it off on a boat on the Pacific. 
But you can start to see early 70s, late 70s, stuff starts to spread out a little bit more. This is still starting to head up over to that railroad that worked until the late, sorry, the mid-90s. But you don't see roads coming off the railroad. You see predominantly stuff going from the river toward the railroad, river. And then we're starting to see that, that one on the far bottom came off of a barge with a bulldozer. And now we're into the late 80s. This is all dirt roads now. So this is primarily resource extraction. Into the 90s. We can skip forward a little bit because it's starting to take too long to do this. No, I can't. Yes, I can. Come on. No, I can't. Oh, sorry. I don't want to run the whole thing over again. Uh. Yeah, this is the problem with doing these cute little things is that they just don't work when you want them to. Anyway, so by the end of it, and I, ah, there it is. Okay, so by the end of it, see that tracery? Those are all, you know, primary and secondary roads. The whole area within about what was about four hours by dugout canoe before is now traversed by roads. And what that meant was, we started the study in 2000, we had a chance to watch and measure through time as roads reach villages for the first time. And so that the actual remoteness of these villages is changing through time. We've measured disease status, pathogen loads, lots of census and demographic data, geographic data about these villages, and then get to see what happens as a road gets for the first time. How does social life change? How does pathogen distribution change as roads reach these areas? So this is a more complicated diagram that came up, the causal pathway diagram, where we're measuring things. Again, you can kind of start with proximity to the road to talk about remoteness, but one of the questions is, well, why is there a road in the first place? You have to keep that in mind, too. I'm not going to go through this now. Lots of disciplines involved. Joe's training is primarily in engineering and epidemiology and modeling. Mine is primarily in anthropology, medical anthropology, and um, to some extent epidemiology. This is what some of the latrines look like. That's what some of the schools look like. This is what the houses look like alongside the river. The houses are on stilts because river levels can change overnight dramatically. I'll show you a slide later that gives you some sense uh, where the water would change as much as 20 feet within about 36 hours. Okay, so you can go from almost no water to full flood in about a day and a half. Okay, so how do we collect data? I'll run through this pretty quickly. Mapping all the villages once a year with uh, portable GIS devices. Um, mapping villages, houses in relation to road. We produce maps like this for each of the villages. Part of what I was doing was then giving these maps back to all the villages so they were getting some of the products of our research work. This is a really dispersed village. This is a really connected village. This is actually the village where those two confluences uh, came together in that stream, the dirty one and the clean one. That's one of the more remote villages, or at least it was at the beginning of the study. We did four different network surveys to be able to visualize social space. Who hangs out with whom? Who do you share food with? Who can you talk with about important things? What's the mean, lover, level, mean number of people in the village with whom you do these things? So you can come up with actual visualizations of social relationships, just like these. So if there's a line between these things, depending on which question is asked, you're either sharing a meal, you're sharing a friendship, you might be going to get water at the same time, and, and, and you can see that you get very different descriptions, visual portrayals of social life and social space contrasted with geographic space. And it just so happens that village A is village A, dispersed geographically and dispersed in network terms. And this is village B, very compact geographically and very also compact in network terms. And we saw that again and again.
We did active disease surveillance, which is every week in, these, in every village for two different, well, four-year period and a three-year period. A case control study to look at people who had symptoms and didn't and compare them within villages twice per year on average. Microbiology of stool samples. We had three uh, liquid nitrogen tanks that we were carrying around in the back of um, dugout canoes with 40 horsepower um, mo motors behind them, which was kind of cool. Uh, a census every year to understand population movement and migration. Ethnographic work, we had local field workers, and this is uh, Marilino Rodriguez, who is a student here, doing her field work down there for a summer, but that was ongoing. We had as many as six people doing that. We had two people that did it almost all the time, and then people coming in on the summertime. And then a fair amount of mathematical modeling that Joe's primarily responsible for. I, I opine, but I am not an expert. So what's some of what we've learned so far? We learned a lot about how pathogens move in the area. How do they get from people into the environment? This is a pathway out to a latrine. No, that's not showing up. Let me see. Does that work? Yeah. So this is a pathway out to a latrine. This is that same pathway out to the latrine. This is a latrine. This is a, this is a relatively unimproved latrine, we would call it in our data. But it doesn't let the water in. So it's relatively impervious to pathogen transmission out of it, except if the water gets above the top or leaks in here, which it often does. Pathogens go from people into the environment. Pathogens move from people to people inside households. So what do we know? If we array the 24 villages that we had in the study in the year 2006 by remoteness, we can classify them, each of these dots is a village, into close, medium, and remote villages. If we look at those classifications of close, medium, and remote villages, and we look at three different kinds of pathogens and diarrhea caused by any of those pathogens, so some of this picks up people who are asymptomatic, this pathogen stuff, um, pretty different levels of risk. If you just look at anybody who has diarrhea, almost double the risk looking at people who live in a close village compared to people who live in a remote village. So people who live close to the road are sicker with this particular infectious disease. They have more of Giardia a protozoa. They have greater risk of um, carrying a virus called rotavirus. They have a higher risk of carrying a bacteria called E. coli. So systematically across all these villages, the ones that are closer to the road have sicker and more pathogen loads than the remote villages. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> we thought it was. The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences thought it was, so they published it. Well, how does this happen? So we have a bunch of ideas, and we're continuing to look into it. That's what some of those doctoral students are studying in the postdocs now. So back to that toy model. We're talking about some changes in demography, kinds of contact. Think about what happens when new people can come to a village for the first time. New pathogens come inside their bodies. They arrive in places where people didn't have resistance to those pathogens. That's why people are scared about the readiness of movement with airplanes. Right? I mean, it's the same thing writ globally that we're seeing here writ at a relatively small scale, except that for anthropologists, it's a relatively large scale because we're looking at 25 villages at the same time and about 6,000 people instead of one village at the same time and about 300 people. That was a long sentence. So by remoteness, there are a lot more mestizos in near communities, 12% than far ones. Mestizos are moving in from other provinces. 
They're not the native Afro-Ecuadorian population. And there's a much shorter duration of village residence in communities near the road, 13 years, than in the far ones, 21 years. So what's happening? People are moving in. They're living in those villages. They're setting up their houses along that road. Remember that dispersed map that I showed you early on? That's one of the clearest examples of the differences in how new folks and old folks live. The old folks are sometimes occupying land, and the cheap land or the free land is right on the side of the road. And so you can find it, set up your little house, and there you are. But you're not very well linked in to the village as a whole. You've got a couple of neighbors near you. And what does that mean? So back to the picture of these two different geographies. This is the new road. These are the isolated houses on the road. And this is the former old community, very close together around the football field. And they used to use this water source before it got polluted. Now, because the water's polluted from the mine upstream, water comes in on a truck that comes down the road. This is the upstream remote village. And let's see what those social networks look like. This is a food sharing network with whom in the past week have you exchanged food? So these are households that have exchanged food. Village A, the road village, and village B, the very remote village. You can see to the naked eye that there are really dramatic differences in social space and relationships here. So think about what happens when a pathogen gets introduced. What happens here? At least if it's inside food, it's likely to get across households. Now, that's not the only way pathogens are introduced. So that's by no means the explanation. And if you're really paying attention, you know that what I just did argues against what I said in the prior slide, because I said the more remote villages are healthier, and yet they have closer social densities. These are more interconnected. So what's going on? Well, because pathogens don't only come through food. They come through water. They come through living human bodies or people sharing all kinds of other things. And networks also carry information. So if you bring in a health message about water treatment to this village, what happens? Kind of the opposite effect. And people don't tend to think about networks having both health-enhancing and health-reducing effects. What we tend to do in epidemiology, I say we, I'm a kind of a distant we in this one, but what epidemiologists tend to do, especially in HIV studies, is to say, well, let's do the contact tracing. Let's figure out who you've had sex with. And if you can draw those social networks, then you know who's going to get sick. That is, the network is a conveyor of disease. But networks don't only convey disease. They also convey social relationships that bring in information, that bring in additional resources to villages. And our argument has been, and we've got some pretty good ethnographic data about this, that these more interconnected villages actually have greater ability to bring in external resources because they're organized. Because you can do things in this kind of social space that you can't in this kind of social space. This is social support. The prior one was food networks. Just so you understand that we get similar and consistent kinds of data from these different prompts. So the prior one was, who do you share food with? This one is, with whom can you discuss important things? And it's still road village A and remote village B. So we have 11 different networks here. This, this one, the biggest one, and then a bunch of smaller ones. <laughs> and this other remote village has five, but actually one, two, three, four of them are dyadic pairs, and all the rest of them are in this one giant network. So it's a, it's a completely different environment. And you don't see this easily. You might try to understand it through time. But it's nice to have these kinds of measures to be able to say with some certainty, the mean degree in this village is 7, and the mean degree in this village is 2. And that helps you understand um, environments and causal 
consequences. So two different explanations. On one hand, we have um, increased contact and movement in the close villages and decreased movement in the remote villages. So we have decreased opportunity for pathogen introduction in the remote villages, right? Because people can't get there as easily. But on the other hand, we've got this competing explanation that the more densely connected remote villages may have and seem to have better ability to bring in additional kinds of resources, um, water treatment campaigns, health campaigns, Peace Corps volunteers, and a whole array of other kinds of folks that help them. So this is a summary of what I just said. I'm not going to do it again. Another example, uh, I want to just talk maybe for five more minutes and then have questions. Right? This doesn't end until 11, till 1.15 or whatever the big hand and the little hand does. I lose the ability to, to tell time when I'm in public, so counting and telling time kind of just escape me. Spelling, too, gets really hard. Okay, so five more minutes, six more minutes, and then we can have some more questions. So we're really interested in these contextual effects, right? Remember I was talking, making a big deal at the beginning about how epidemiologists do these lamplight studies? We didn't want to do lamplight studies. We wanted to pay particular attention to how the disease status in your neighbors influences your disease status in your village. And that's not the way epidemiologists tend to think. So in this study uh, that was done, yeah, we published in the American Journal of Epidemiology a couple of years ago, we took four years of active surveillance data across 21 of the villages, um, looked at what state of um, disease level, what the disease level was in any village at any particular time, and looked at the state of all the other villages at a preceding time. Remember, we have this data on disease collected through time, four years, twice. So you can look to see, well, given disease state now, well, what was the disease state in all the neighbors a week, a month, three months before? And lo and behold, and this was a toy that I did for explaining this to our community health workers. The incidence of diarrhea in neighboring villages affects your risk in your village. So if this is a little diarrhea in a village, come, baby, get back there. Where'd you go? Here we go. If this is a little diarrhea, little circle, and this is a lot of diarrhea, big circle, and we say that your village doesn't have much and your neighboring villages don't have much, what does that mean? Well, we're thinking about risk here. So what's the efficacy of boiling your water in this circumstance? Exactly. When the neighboring villages have not much diarrhea, it doesn't make so much difference whether or not you treat your water. That's kind of interesting. It's not the way epidemiologists usually think. Usually you just want to have, what's the mean risk of, of boiling or not boiling treating your water? You don't think about other villages. You don't measure that. And you certainly don't measure it multiple times through time. Conversely, however, if in your village there isn't much, and in your neighbors there's a lot, what's going to happen? How beneficial is water boiling going to be? Do I hear more? Yeah. Do I hear less? I hear mostly more. Not much. When neighboring villages have lots of diarrhea, treating the water doesn't make as much difference. Why? Because the more diarrhea there is in the environment, the easier it is for it to move. And, and these pathogens move not only through water, they also move through food, they also move through mud and other things carried in. So there's lots of ways for those pathogens to move. 
So the efficacy of the risk, sorry, the efficacy of this treatment is lower depending on the environment in which your village exists. We thought that was kind of cool. I still think it's kind of cool. This is what it looks like in the graph in the, in the publication, for those of you that like graphs, and I know some of you really don't like graphs, but some people do like graphs. So what we have is demonstrations of low, medium, and high risk and proportion of drinking water, and in that context where regional risk is low, it makes a big difference, and where regional risk is high, it doesn't make much difference, okay? Okay, so we tend to think about risk as something static. Do you or do you not? Have you or have you not? But in fact, it changes because what we're saying is the risk is contextualized dependent upon the state of these neighboring villages. And again, that's not the way epidemiologists tend to think. And part of what we're doing is pushing this kind of thinking in epidemiology. I think we've published something like 40 publications out of this study so far. We did a big review in the American in the Annual Review of Public Health about this. And we're still pushing, pushing in the, um, the fortunate change here is that Joe is now chair of the Department of Epidemiology in the University of Michigan, which is a really good school of public health. And so he can really push this in a big way in his faculty and his department. So we'll see what happens there. Stay tuned. I'll let you know in another five years. How's that? Um, so I was going to talk more about another contextual effect. I'm already running out of time. And I haven't even gotten to the modeling yet. Um, well, OK. so. How much rain there's been also influences what kind of risk there is. But it turns out it's not just how much rain there is. It depends upon how dry it's been before it's rained a lot. If it rains a lot after it's been wet, you don't get as much of a big pathogen load and you don't get as much disease. If it rains a lot after it's been really dry, imagine all that shit piling up in the dry season. You get a big flush of water, it all goes into the water, you get this major pathogen burden, and that creates an epidemic. So again, it's not just that water matters, it's how much water there is matters, and it's how much water there was before you got the water that you're measuring that matters. So again, trying to think about time as another complexity here. Spatial dependencies and temporal dependencies, both making a difference in this story. All right, so I'll go through that, where we're going. Where we're going is playing with models, getting more abstract, and that's part of why I also wanted to have those objects for you to look at. Did those objects circulate around so you had a chance to touch them and see them? Okay, good. Um, so we're doing a study now for, we got, we got five years of analysis money from NSF to look at hydrology and social behavior. And the idea is we want to try and predict what happens with water through time. A lot of interest in climate change, a lot of interest in flooding, how do people react in flooded conditions, how will disease transmission change under flooded conditions. So we've got a team now at Berkeley that's doing a lot of hydrological modeling in our group here and at Michigan, um, doing a lot of the social modeling. And um, we're including the data that we have on networks and density and movement in these models, as well as some very complicated um, Statistical stuff, there's a complicated, really exact phrase, statistical stuff. Yeah, we're doing a lot of statistical stuff here. What we're trying to do is think about how you predict the future and how do you take what you know from the past and then run that out into the future, which is what climate modelers do all the time. But what we're trying to do is get a little more complicated in the social measurement and predicting social responses. So we're putting in some of these contact and uh, movement data into this, into this model. Um, 
that probably doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do this. Oh, this is, yeah, this is important. So two more or three more slides. So just so you understand the, the hydrodynamics here. Um, so this is a mean, not a mean, this is a difference of 17 feet in altitude. How do I know? Because I know how high these steps are. Right? And these are pictures that have been taken either by me or other people from the project at different times in the year. This picture was taken from here with the water here. This picture was taken from here, straight down, with the water here. And this picture I took from here of this when the water was there. But this water <laughs> gets this high up here. And that can happen in 36 hours. All of the data on climate change suggests that what we will see in the future is increasing, in, increasing variability and increasing intensity in change. So if we're seeing these kinds of hydrodynamics and hydrological features of these villages now, and we start to use the IPCC models of weather and apply them to this area, 17 feet starts to look pretty nice. And these houses are already on stilts because they've been able to calculate through time what's the mean water, high water mark from floods. How do you calculate? Well, if your village is no longer there, it means you're too low. <laughs> or your house is no longer there. But that's for a mean change of 17. Now, we just heard on the news that the IPCC, well, some of the climate scientists not yet in the next IPCC report are saying, well, maybe by 2100, it's going to be five to six feet mean sea level rise instead of the two to three feet that was predicted earlier. So that's a doubling. What happens to these places under those circumstances? They got nowhere to go. And part of what we're trying to model is what are the kinds of village features that cause villages to move? How does network density and social life influence social organization influence the ability of a village to say, we need to go somewhere else. Some of these villages have done that, only two, but some have. How does wealth, proximity to a river, influence one's ability to move and one's likelihood of getting flooded or contacting more diseases, getting sick from the pathogens in the water during flood times? This village built a uh, flood wall that was, I took both these in 2003 and then went back, well, went back a whole bunch of times, but one of the times came back in 2010, and this wall had been built to try and protect the village. So what allows the village to make those kinds of decisions? And under what circumstances do all the villages have to make these kinds of decisions? And which villages are likeliest to have to need to make these kinds of decisions? That's part of what we're playing with. And then the only other thing I want to do, we'll show you this if it works, which is the toy model that the postdoc has been playing with. And maybe it's not going to cooperate with me unless. Yeah, okay, so is this working? Yeah, so this is a really simple model using something called Net and Logo, where you can play around with, in this case, whoa, here we go, river volume as it changes through time. You can call all these agents, these are like, um, <sighs> what's the movie where everything, Neo, this is like Neo, the software agent. You can program Neo with all these characteristics of how often he gets or she gets water, does she or she move her house, under what circumstances does he or she go to school, what happens when it floods, and begin to predict and play with some of these specifics in the model. So that's some of what we're doing now in this project. And we'll be doing that for another two years with a variety of simulations. So challenges, and I'll stop. Um, collecting data at different scales is done at different rhythms. 
costs different amounts of money. It's really hard to bring these things together. Analysis challenges are very different. Um, how to describe ecology thickly but appropriately with appropriate detail. That's a non-trivial challenge. It's hard to do. Um, it costs a lot. I think we've spent uh, $10 million over 15 years on this project. So it's really hard to do this in lots of places. It's incredibly complicated. It takes lots of time, lots of people, lots of disciplines, lots of questions. Um, but I think it's a really exciting opportunity to try to get involved in this kind of work, to, have these, to take advantage of these natural experiments that the environment and the world poses for us. Thinking about um, how social life is provoked or perturbed and how do you try and think about the echoes of those perturbations. Um, how do you measure these kinds of different flows? How do you integrate methods to disseminate results? That's a project for a lifetime. Um, you can Google EchoDesk if you want to know more about the project. Uh, we've done lots of different kinds of presentations to lots of different kinds of audiences. We've had a bunch, these bolded ones are the honors theses that have produced, been produced by students here. The ones with stars are thesis projects in Ecuador. And there's a whole bunch of stuff out of Michigan that I didn't put on here. Lots of articles. Um, and even some stuff in the news. This is me being interviewed for TV. Uh, this is the big white guy being interviewed for TV. Yeah. I just look at how white I am. It's like. <laughs> Well, you know, you're supposed to wear, it's really hot and it's really sunny and I sweat a lot, so I dress in white when I'm down there. Yeah, so I'm the white guy. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your attention. Questions, please. We started right there at the end.